Good afternoon, God speak. I pray that you had a tremendously blessed Thanksgiving. You still got a little leftover turkey in there that you swore you would never eat again after the last few days. But you find yourself kind of grazing through that, a little slice of pumpkin pie. It's up to here. You go, I'm never going to eat again. And three hours later, you're like, <laughs> digging into it. That's why the Lord made elastic waistbands to be able to do Thanksgiving. We have so much truly to be thankful for. What a blessing. Hey, we're going to turn to James chapter 3 if you have a Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, our service team are coming down the aisle. Raise your hand and they'll get you a Bible for our message this afternoon, what wisdom looks like. How can you tell what wisdom is? What does it look like? Pardon me as I uh, get my... Don't you hate it when you go to the restaurant and you get the floppy table? Every time you bump it, it spills your drink or something. So anyway, what does wisdom look like? How can you evaluate it? And what are the benefits that come with wisdom? How, how is wisdom different than knowledge? And what does understanding have to do with it? These are words that the Bible uses to talk about a person that is falling in love with God and they now discover wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So how is it that I can't even start becoming not a wise guy, I'm already that at birth, but a wise person in my relationship with God? How's that happen? How does the fear of the Lord and now me understanding a right vertical relationship with God, how does that translate into the wisdom of now moving through the landmines and the obstacles of this life with all the conflicts that it holds? James is going to give us the insight that I want you to know that when you discover what wisdom looks like and you can identify it, you also know what foolishness looks like and you can identify it. I promise you when there is chaos and there's all kinds of problems, whether it's with your children or within the marriage or in the office or on the team, it doesn't matter where it's at. I can always follow this roadmap of what true wisdom looks like. I can follow it upstream until I identify the problem. Aha, here's the problem. And the problem, the heart of the problem is always the problem of the heart, that there's somebody that is selfish and striving for what they want and it's causing problems for everybody around them. Everybody around them, there's the collateral damage. I can solve 90% of marriage problems when people sit down without saying a word. You're here because you have problems, don't say a word. You're both being very selfish, start serving one another, go away. And they would go away and they would start having a better marriage. They'd start having a better life. Isn't that true with your children? Your children are in the back seat. Who in the world invented a family vacation where you put kids in the car for 10 hours in close proximity where they can touch each other? He touched me. He took my candy bar. Mom, dad. It's like total chaos. Is there any wisdom back there? Not one iota. Right? Because they haven't discovered wisdom, that's what a parent's job is, to train them in the ways of the Lord so that they fall in love with God, have the fear of the Lord, because in the fear of the Lord, we then submit to one another in love. These things are supernatural wisdom thoughts and insights that God gives us from his word. That's why a believer in Jesus has the possibility, he has the potential to navigate this life 
with all of its broken mess of foolishness and navigate it wisely. Strong like water going around those boulders of conflict and being able to interact with them and figure it out. Well, that's what we're going to look at here today. So please stand with me for the reading of the word. We're going to read verses 13 through 18 of James chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it is earthly, sensual, demonic, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Lord, we ask now that your Holy Spirit would open our understanding and give us wisdom. Lord, download into our hearts the wisdom of your word, illuminate electrify with the power of your spirit that we might be able to walk in this wisdom and be able to navigate the unwise circumstances of, that are created in front of us and around us and amongst us, Lord, with your incredible wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at, first of all, wisdom from within then wisdom from above or excuse me, then wisdom from below and then wisdom from above. These three things. In this passage from verse 13 through 18, and when we look at wisdom within, this is really a question mark. It's a challenge. It's, it's a question to your own heart. Now, it's a little dangerous, but if you came here with somebody that really knows you well, <laughs> right? If my wife's hanging out with me, she knows me inside and out. She knows the bad version of me. She knows the good version of me. She's known me since we were kids, and we were both the same height, both at 5'7", 125 pounds, and could wrestle each other, and she could almost whip me because she was seriously strong. But I knew wrestling moves, so she couldn't get the best of me. When you grow up with someone like that, and you've been together for 40 years, they know you. They know if you are wise or if you're foolish or if you're generally wise and sometimes foolish. This is the question that James asked each one of us here today. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Should we raise our hands? Should we find out that way? Who's wise and understanding? Every hand goes up because nobody wants to be a fool, right? So we're not gonna do a show of hands. <laughs> but it tells us three things. If you think you're wise, if you claim to be wise, you're gonna do three things. Let him show by good conduct, this means your lifestyle and your behavior, that people would look at your conduct and your lifestyle and the way that you interact with people, the way that you uh, interact at work, the way that you interact with your family, the way that you're interacting with your spouse, the way that you're interacting with your children. They would look at you and say, you are operating in good conduct. This has to do with your behavior, your observable outward lifestyle that you have going on. And you know when people are living unwise in their behavior and their lifestyle. Oftentimes we describe that your freshman year in college, if you know what I mean. People go freshman year in college, they party the first year's tuition away, get terrible grades because they finally got out of the house from all those crazy restrictions 
of wisdom that mom and dad had for them, right? Get to bed on time, get up on time, do your homework, show up on time, work hard, do those things, right? Oh, those are constraining. But your parents are older, right? They're in their 40s, their 50s. They've discovered what good conduct looks like and they are grooming you to have good conduct. Even though you hate that grooming, you hate that mentorship, and you go away and you think, that's it. I'm gonna throw caution to the wind, I'm gonna throw wisdom to the wind, and I'm gonna live like hell. Because mom and dad said I shouldn't do that, okay? So we know what unwise living looks like, don't we? It's just simply observable. I know an apple tree when there's great big apples hanging off of it, I go, yep, that's an apple tree. And I look at a person's life and I go, that's foolish apples, <laughs> that's wise apples. He says, by good conduct, that his works are done, that you do good things, good deeds, good works, in the meekness of wisdom. So he says three things. You, you say you're wise. I want to be wise. I really do. Don't you really want to be wise? Nobody wants to be a fool. They want, don't want to be considered a fool. And granted, most of us think we're wiser than we really are. We think we really have it together, and oftentimes we really don't. And everybody around us knows this, knows it, and we're the only ones that are living in our own self-delusion that we're really wise. <laughs> but we're not. Because people misunderstand intellect. Hey, I have a degree. I'm really smart. I, I'm a men, member of the Mensa Society, meaning that you know I've taken an IQ test, and you have to have this level of IQ to be in the genius uh, club. And you're loads of club. You join as a genius. Yet, my stepdad was in the Mensa club. He was a genius. His IQ was off the chart. And he was an ex-con. And he was an armed robber. He used all of his intellect for evil. So j just because he had high IQ, that doesn't mean you're wise. Do you know the difference between <laughs> knowledge is information? Some of you guys have a lot of information in there. You ever hang out with somebody that just seems to be a magnet for trivia? It doesn't matter what you say. They're just, brrr, brrr, brrr. Like they're this cultural. You just look at them like, what? Are you some kind of walking Google? You just spit out this information and they just have this ability to retain facts. But intellect and knowledge and information is not wisdom. Wisdom is taking good, wholesome thoughts of information and applying them. Knowledge is information, wisdom is application, right? You can say you know the knowledge that if I wear this seatbelt and I have an airbag and I get in a wreck, you might even study the statistics that I have a 90.3 uh, higher chance of living and surviving and not having major injury if I wear my seatbelt and have an airbag. I have the information. Wisdom's getting in. I may not even know that information, but this seems like a good idea, <laughs> Right? Buckle in my seatbelt. Wisdom is application. It's not information. And that's especially true of spiritual things. Somebody should look at our life and see the over, uh, overarching lifestyle and behavior and go, wow, they're living a very wise, good, productive life. They're doing good things. Notice that it says that his works are done, that you're doing good works. Do you know the Christian life, there's a place for good works, now, because people make the mistakes of putting good works in the salvation formula, we say it's, you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace through faith. 
not of works, lest anyone should boast. So there's no works in the merit or in our approach of a merit relationship with God. We have unmerited favor by God's grace. But the Bible sincerely, passionately teaches that once we are saved, that Christians should do good works. Because Jesus tells us why. You see, when I'm saved by faith, the condition of my heart is known by the Lord and I'm saved. The Lord says that you do your good works before men, that they see your good deeds and they glorify your Father in heaven. You see, people see my faith through my actions, my works, my deeds. God sees my heart by faith. Therefore, I'm right with God. And the good things I do, people go, how come you do good things? And you point back, it's because Jesus has changed my heart. I want to be good. I want to do good things. Thirdly, he says, it's in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness, unfortunately, this is a difficult word to translate from the Greek into English because we have in our mindset this thought of meekness as weakness, and that is not what this word means. Jesus was meek, but he was not weak. Aristotle put it this way. Aristotle, in this classical Greek sense, described this word of meekness. He said it's the perfect balance between knowing when to get angry at the right things. Do you know that there is a time to get angry at bad things? We call it righteous indignation. Did Jesus get angry? Absolutely. Does throughout the Bible when the Lord's people do something bad and it says, and the Lord was angry. Do you know you're created in the image of God? Why do you get angry? Because you're created in the image of God. Now the problem is, is that God's anger is always righteous in nature and my anger is not always righteous in nature. Sometimes I'm just angry because I'm impatient. Get out of my way, you bum, <laughs> right? Honking the horn. Get out of the way. Why? Because I'm important and you're slowing me down. Is that righteous indignation? No, that's being a jerk, okay? So these qualities that, and he says, but it's also the, the perfect balance knowing when to get angry with the right balance of anger for the situation and also not getting angry at all. Some people think it's a sin in the Christian life to be angry. It's not a sin. The Bible says be angry and sin not, meaning that when I get angry, I need to be meek and control it and process, why am I angry? Am I angry at the right things? I have this little checklist in my brain that I go through. So meekness is not weakness. It's actually power under control. This classical Greek word is also used of a horse that has been tamed. You know how powerful a horse is? Have you ever, how many of you have ever been bucked off a horse? Raise your hand. Everybody has a been bucked off the horse story. And horses are extremely powerful. I mean, their necks are nothing but muscle, right? And their, their rear ends, they got these huge rear ends of muscle. They're powerful. But when they're trained and tame, my uncle had a horse named Needles. My uncle, both uh, my uncles are horse trainers. And you could take off the bridle off of Needles, and he could just ride needles all over the arena with pressure with his knees for what he wanted needles to do. So needles had all this power and all this strength, but he was meek. His power was under the constraint of being tamed and useful for his master who is riding him. That's what meekness is. It is Jesus having this incredible power and yet it's under control and he only uses, he displayed his anger when it was appropriate, turned over the tables, cleared out the money changers in the temple courts because that was a righteous indignation. You see, wisdom is outwardly observable 
from other people about your life, your lifestyle, your behavior, the good things that you do or the bad things that you do, and also the meekness. If your own spiritual being is under the control, then I, in an appropriate way, lean into those things that are wrong and bad, and I can get stirred up to want to resist that which is evil, as opposed to those who think going through life as a Christian life is never getting angry. Martin Luther, the great reformer, says, said, I never do anything well until I'm good and mad. <laughs> right? And I'm a little bit that way myself. I have to be like seriously provoked and then go, okay, Lord, this is wrong. We got to do something about it. And I got to pray through it. So I'm actually operating in the right attitude that the Lord has for me. So now, first of all, he's going to, describe, he's going to contrast wisdom that's from below that people have that are not acknowledging the Lord. And sadly, even many Christians live this way day to day. So we're going to look at wisdom that's from below, and then we're going to look at wisdom that comes from above. One that's an earthly wisdom that we'll be very familiar with, and the other one that is a heavenly wisdom that we might not be as familiar with, but it's important for us to understand. So the wisdom that's from below in verse 14 through 16 says, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Now he tells us two things, and he's going to repeat it. He says, if there is bitter envy in your heart, there's this bitterness, and you have this envy, a zeal that is, that is wrong-oriented. The Bible says that envy is like rottenness in your bones, if you're moving through life and you're angry and you're bitter as you look around at other people that you think are blessed and you're not, you're a single person and you look at a married person and you're resentful towards them, wouldn't you rejoice that they found somebody to spend their life with, right? Why are you ticked off? That, that has nothing to do with you. You know, I notice people, they get this chip on their shoulder and they go through life and rather than practicing the attitude of gratitude each day in their life where I'm just, I'm so thankful, God, for what you've done in my life. I got a roof over my head. I got, I got food in the cupboards. I got gas for the car. I'm just so blessed. And you practice gratitude. And when you practice gratitude, you are not wrapped up in bitterness of envy and then self-seeking. There's something that you want. Now, twice he repeats this phrase, bitter envy and self-seeking. And so where do we see this unwise behavior? Well, it's going on right now in our children's ministry. That's where it's going on. You put some two and three-year-olds in our Sunday school room, and there's toys all around the walls of the, the room. There's probably 100 toys, right? But the first kid there goes and picks him out a toy, and he goes and plops down in the middle of the room, and he's got this one toy. Now, every other kid that's going to come in that room from that point on wants what toy? Now, there's 99 toys along the wall, but there's just something about the one he has. I just got to have that one. I just got to have it. I got to have it. I got to have it. And you go, oh, look at these toys. And they look, and, then, and they look at that toy, and they come back. And pretty soon, they only take another toy to come club him so that they can rob him of that toy. This is what we call Parenting 101. All right? These are your children, by the way, little sinful people that came from your bodies because the apple didn't fall far from the tree. 
On Sunday morning, they fight like cats and dogs. It's hard to get them ready. You fought all the way here in the car. Shut up, be quiet. We're going to love Jesus. (laughs) Children, because they have not learned, they have not learned to mask their selfishness. They have not learned to mask their envy. I want your ball. Why? You have a ball. I know, but you have a blue ball and I have a red ball and I wish I had a blue ball. <laughs> but you know, 50 and 60 year olds are going through life just like that. They're, they're looking at the house. They're looking at the spouse. They're looking at the, you know, it doesn't matter, the job. They, they want, we, we are driven through life by our own selfishness. And then we're bitter at other people that seem to have what we really, really, really want. And little kids just don't hide it. <laughs> I was with my grandkids this last week. We were at a park, an amazing park with all this playground equipment. And there just seemed to be one little spot that the kids had discovered. Oh, one person's having fun there. I need to have that spot. <laughs> And I watched my grandkids, they had played this game. There's this little window. So they were playing like, they'd go get these leaves. And then one of them, you know, I have a five-year-old and a a two-year-old grandchildren. And they would get on each side of the window and they would act like these leaves were ice cream cones. Like, you can buy an ice cream cone. Here's the leaf. And then they would act like they're getting imaginary money. And they were just making it look so fun. All of a sudden, the kids, I mean, it's a square acre of playground, but they were just making it look too stinking fun. And all the other kids started crowding in on it and they wanted that window and pretty soon they're shoveling and elbowing and moving around and fighting over stupid leaves that are all over the ground. (laughs) And finally, my grandson, who's two, who knows how to hold his own ground, he was here first. He's only two. And this little girl, sweet little girl comes up and tries to take his space and he went, (laughs) just boom. I'm like, hello, hey, you gotta intervene before you have a big... A war, a big meltdown on the playground with moms and dads and everything else. So this wisdom of bitter envy and self-seeking, you have to recognize this in yourself. It's it's not for you. Some of you are sitting here going, oh man, I wish Eddie would have been here for this. He really needs this message. You know what? I'm going to get this and I'm going to send this message to Eddie. Eddie needs it. Eddie needs it, but you don't. Don't you realize the frustration in marriage is you want things to be this way according to your self-interest and your spouse wants it to be this way according to their self-interest and that's what we call job security for marriage counselors. (laughs) Well, let's negotiate. Let's compromise in the (laughs) self-centered issue Bitterness. And if you're the person that always gives in to the spouse, you always, oh, sure, just, you know, because you're pa- more passive. You just, you, you can have your way. You can have your way. It's funny, some, <laughs> you know, a husband shares with me, every night my wife dictates where we go out to dinner. We're empty nesters. We're going to go out to dinner. And we're supposed to have this plan that I choose tonight, she chooses tomorrow night, right? And so she chose last night and she'll go, oh, it's your turn tonight. And I'll go, well, I think I'll go here. Oh, I really don't like that one. Oh, well, let's go over here. No, I don't like that one. And he said, passively, we end up going where she wants every single night. 
But they, she thinks she's given me a choice because she can just X out the choices that I'm making, right? Now, this is not a deal breaker in marriage, but it's just a little picture that somebody that's very passive, what happens is they constantly, they constantly give into the other person's dominant selfish desire and they slowly build up and then explode one day over the stupidest thing on the planet. It's not even an important thing, but it, it's not about that one issue. It's about 100 issues that have built up. So wisdom that is from below is driven by my selfishness and my bitter envy of what I think I deserve. And commercials are wrapped around this, right? You deserve a break today, right? I mean, everything is I deserve, I deserve. We live in the most me, me, me generation of all American history. It's all about me. And this is what you have to pursue. And anything that limits your self-expression is obviously wrong. No, it's not. Now, he tells us where this wisdom comes from. Obviously, all of this wisdom, if all of us are just born on this planet and we raise kids, this is how we govern, we're governed. Selfish ambition, whatever I want, I'm going to fight for. And bitter envy, I'm going to hate you because you have what I want. That's a great society, isn't it? Great family gathering. But he tells us where this kind of wisdom, you see the Lord's not included in this because this is wisdom from below. He describes it as earthly, sensual, and demonic. Earthly means I never elevate to a heavenly perspective that God may have something to tell me about. I never think of the spiritual plane because sensual just means I, I operate on my animal nature was what, whatever feels good, I just do it. I don't care who I hurt. Thirdly, it's demonic. The devil and his demonic hordes can pull on your earthly point of view of selfishness and your animalistic instincts and he can just keep you in this swirl of what? Confusion and chaos and every evil thing. If your marriage is in chaos, if your children are in chaos, you just follow it upstream. Where's the selfish ambition? Where's the bitter envy? And you identify it and you can find the problem. In a church congregation of any size, when problems start to happen, I can guarantee it's somebody's selfish ambition. They want some role or power or authority in the church and they start manipulating and, and they create this chaos and pretty soon it's a, it's a storm of division that starts in the, and I just follow it upstream. Aha, you're the person. Hello, we're gonna have a talk. I can't bend you over my knee and spank your butt but I'm gonna do the next best thing. I'm gonna have a good talking to you because we're not gonna have every evil thing and chaos in our family, in our church family, in our physical family. With my children, it was the same thing as they are growing up. You have to learn. Now, if you've ever questioned human depravity, which means sin has tainted or affected every area of the human life, just have kids. They will prove it to you. Right? They will prove it to you. Mine, 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 when they learn that word. Mine. And they begin their selfish journey. You have to teach a child to share with others, correct? You have to teach them to share because they do not do it naturally. They will not do it naturally. You have to teach them to share. You have to teach them to be kind because they want to be harsh. Children are the perfect illustration of what James is talking about here. 
and confusion and every evil thing. We were, uh, I was teaching this message probably 20 years ago in the church and this lady came up to me and she said, well, pastor, this is fascinating because we just had a new manager come into our office and we have like eight people that work at our office and all of us got along so great. It was so peaceful. It was so wonderful before. And now this new person's in and there's just all of this swirl. There's like every evil thing and chaos and backbiting. And, and, and I said, just follow it to wherever the selfish ambition is and you're going to find the root of that. Now, she was a person that had no authority, so she could do nothing to fix it. But it's true no matter where you look. So what's wisdom look like from above? Wisdom from above is very different. As a matter of fact, wisdom from above is described in eight distinct things. Eight distinct things. If you're a note taker... Wisdom that is from above, this is the kind of wisdom that God downloads into the hearts that begins the journey of wisdom. Now, we don't, we don't just wake up one day as these wise old owls. It's a journey. Sanctification and God changing our hearts and lives is a journey. And so the goal is, five years from now, I want to be more like this list than I was before, right? It just takes time to grow in wisdom. So he says, but wisdom that is from above is, number one, it's pure all these things conquer some area of foolishness in our life, okay? So if, first of all, it's pure. When I repented of my sins and believed in Jesus, there was an overcoming of sin, a victory over sin that the Lord begins to move me away from sin and towards obedience to him. When you say that's true in your Christian life, you fell in love with Jesus, you want to move away from sin and towards purity in the Lord. So true wisdom is going to move you away from sin, not towards sin. It also, this wisdom that is from above, is peaceable. It overcomes strife. So I might have been a strifeful individual before, or I created a lot of chaos, but now I actually want to navigate and be peaceful with people. Now, peace is not the absence of conflict. You're going to have conflict in your family, conflict with your children, conflict with your marriage. You're going to have conflict everywhere in life because there's other people with agendas in their life and their heart as well. And so to be peaceful means to be able to navigate this in a way that you can create by God's grace working in wisdom through you, you can create wisdom and bring peace to situations. I can bring peace to my marriage. I can bring peace to my children. By my presence, I know how to do it. I know how to work it out. I know how to ultimately bring that kind of peace. And because I'm moving towards this wisdom by God's grace and this pleases him, I want to do this. So this wisdom from above also is gentle instead of harsh. I learned to deal with things, not with a sledgehammer, but much more gentle. Now, I have a tendency to be very forceful with my words. And so my wife would, you know, when we were raising the kids, my wife would have to, uh, she never did it in front of the kids. She was always very respectful, but she'd take me in the other room and she would educate me on the finer points of being a parent. It was very, it was very helpful. And if I'm a wise person, I'm going to listen to her because my wife has relational skills that I don't possess and I constantly needed to hear from her. Now, I have a strength that she doesn't have and she has skills uh, that I don't have. And, and, and those two things coming together, that's why it really takes two parents to get this job done. This is pretty tough to get it done. And, and so the gentleness, I always had to work on being more gentle you can be gentle with your words. The Bible says that a gentle word can break a bone. Then you know you can say something to your child that can just, like just break their heart by just a harsh word. 
but you, you're moving towards gentleness. All this wisdom from above, you're moving towards it. It's not that you've perfected it. It's not like you've arrived. None of us have arrived. I haven't arrived. But I'm moving impurity away from sin towards obedience. I'm moving towards a peaceful experience with the relationships that I have. I'm doing it with a gentleness. The Bible says that a gentle word can turn away wrath, but a harsh word stirs it up, right? You know that, that there's that point in any discussion where you escalate it, you escalate it by an insult or you escalate it by a harsh word, or a gentle word can de-escalate. Do you know that you have the ability to escalate or de-escalate by how you interact with people? Like if you just kind of back off and de-escalate, they, they try to tr train police officers how to de-escalate situations so it doesn't have to get physical, right? They, they teach them a skill. But this is the skill that all of us need to grow in, as it says in Proverbs 15:1, that a gentle word, a gentle word turns away wrath. I've been in situations and everything inside of me wanted to be explosive with my response. You ever felt that way? I just, boom, man, I just, oh, if you, <laughs> if you only knew what was going on in my mind right now. But that verse comes through my mind. Hey, a gentle word right here will help this. And unlike my nature that is from below, I tap into the wisdom that's from above and I share that gentle word and it de-escalates. And then I give another gentle word and it de-escalates because I'm walking in wisdom. This is wisdom. The wisdom from above is also willing to yield. It overcomes stubbornness. You know somebody that no matter what they want, they're, gonna de they're determined to get it. They're stubborn. Yet the Lord told Saul, King Saul, the first king, who totally blew it, lost his kingdom, the Lord said, your stubbornness, Saul, is like idolatry. You know what you worship as an idol? Your own will. You are stubborn and you are your own idol. So willing to yield... I'm never going to yield to something that's a, say, a paramount truth or concept, like the, the message that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. That's, that's an exclusive claim that I will die on that theological hill, so to speak. I'm not going to yield. So it doesn't mean I yield every point, but there's so much in life. There's 90% of the stuff in life. It's just, it's not important, you know. So, okay, you want the toilet paper to go this way on the roll? I want it to go that way. You know, I'm going to concede that. I'm just willing to yield. It's not a big deal. Right? I would rather you squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom all the way up for efficiency, and you continue to do it in the middle, very inefficient, but I'm willing to yield. It's just not a big deal. Right? Just not a big deal. So I know that... <laughs> yeah, I could go on and on and on. There's a lot of petty things that are just not... I mean, just ask yourself, is this really worth the conflict? Because if it's not, why would I not be willing to yield? It's just not a big deal. I come out. I'm getting ready to go to church. I have clothes. I'm dressed, I think, appropriately. And then my wife sees me. She says, are you really going to go out in public looking like that? Now, we never had this conversation before we got married 37 years ago. It was amazing. As soon as we got married, my wife who has excellent taste, by the way, and I just do what I'm told so that I don't look like a dork because she has the best taste ever. So I'm just, I just call her my stylist. I come out, is this okay? She's like, no, I think that other shirt. I'm like, okay. And I just go in and I'm willing to yield about my clothes. And you know, this is a fascinating thing. 
I have been willing to yield about a lot of advice that my wife has. My wife is super wise about a lot of stuff. And I'll tell her, honey, thank you for that advice. I'm going to implement that. I'm going to do that. Sometimes she'll come to a service on Saturday night. And if I'm going to preach all the services in the same morning, she's like, you know, you may want to change that illustration. That's not just the right illustration. And I go, okay, do you have any suggestions? It's because she's wise, and I'm willing to yield. I'm willing to say, you know what? I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, and I need some help. Right? I'm not. And, but if you think you're the person that always has to be right, you are not a person that is usually willing to yield. And you will also be a very, 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 very lonely person. Because you and your stubbornness, they're lovers. You, yourself, and I, you're the happiest person in the world. You know what? You get to live life as selfish as you want to. Because there's nobody else in your orbit but you to bow down to and to worship in your own idol factory of one. It's not wisdom from above. It's wisdom from below. It's also full of mercy. It overcomes judgment. When you can interact with people with God's mercy. God's merciful to me, so I want to be merciful to others. Mercy means I don't give. I didn't get what I deserved. You know what I deserved? I deserved judgment. I deserved help. That's what I deserved. And I never pray, oh, Lord, give me justice. Please don't give me justice. Give me mercy. Mercy is God not giving me what I deserve. So if in this wisdom I'll be full of mercy towards others, that means the incredible kindness that God has given me not to give me what I deserve. And if somebody hurts me or harms me or does something bad, and you go, you don't know what they've done to me. And I say, yeah, but I know what you and I have done to the Lord. We've, we've sinned egregiously against the Lord. So if God's been merciful to me, I want to be merciful to you. I don't want to, I don't want to go through life as a judge, just judging people. You see, mercy triumphs over judgment, Jesus said. And he said, go learn what this means to the Pharisees because they just didn't get it. They were not wise. They thought being self-righteous judges of the world was the right thing. It's not. You'll want to hang out with a merciful person. You'll want to be married to a merciful person. You'll want to have a merciful boss. You want to hang out with people that love mercy and they dispense mercy. Because if you really want what you deserve, you want justice, you want harsh treatment, you want judgment, and some churches are just that way. It's weird. Some con- congregations get trained that if they didn't, just don't get beat like with a biblical club every Sunday so they feel awful, the pastor's not doing his job because they're being ministered to in an atmosphere of judgment rather than mercy. We need the mercy of God, and we need to give the mercy of God. It's also, number six, it's full of good fruits. It's just, there's a goodness, there's a, a refreshment, good fruits. There's just people, when they're with you, they're just blessed. They're refreshed, they're encouraged, they're built up. And it overcomes rottenness, the corruption that makes you selfish and cynical and, and terrible to pee around, and, and you just don't care about others. There's this overcomes the rottenness. Also, without partiality, this wisdom, it overcomes favoritism that, hey, if this is the right thing, whether this person's rich or old or, uh, or thin or fat or tall or you know, short or uh, whatever it is, it, 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 
there's not this, hey, this is just the right thing to do in this situation. It doesn't matter what the players are like. That's why Lady Justice, if you see on the, you know, she has a blind, you know, there's this balance of, of judge, justice because her eyes are blind. It doesn't matter if you're wearing a Rolex or you're, you're driving a Pinto. I don't know why I said that, but Pintos aren't around anymore. You know what I mean? Pintos were a terrible, terrible car. And, but the reality is there, there, there's, Wisdom helps you, it, it helps you deal with humans. All humans are worthy of dignity. All humans are worthy of dignity because they're created in the image of God. But you'll, you'll notice that you go through life showing favoritism to the people that are the most like you and judgment towards the people that are the least like you. It's a human trait, but wisdom helps you overcome that. And lastly, the eighth thing is end without hypocrisy, which means you're not going through life insincerely. You're not a fake. Does anybody like a phony? Right? You come to church and you put on this mask. Hi, praise the Lord. Love Jesus. And you're a businessman out there just ripping people off five days a week. You know, you're just, you're a terrible person. But you come to church and you're insincere. You... You play this game. You're not, you're not who you really present to the rest of the world. And without hypocrisy means that we're, we're genuine, authentic, who we are. What you see is what you get. This, this is who I am. That's why it's important not to act over-spiritual, like you're super-spiritual. Hey, we're saved by God's grace. And I'm just thankful that my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's it. <laughs> Praise God. I get to go to heaven. Hopefully, I get to take a few people with me. And that's my goal. And verse 18 says, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. All of that, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of right living, is like a gardener or a farmer. I'm planting seeds of peace all the time because I want to make for peace. Peace has to be pursued in order to be maintained. I have to spend time with my wife. I have to spend time with my kids. If my kids are growing up, I have to spend time with them to maintain this uh, incredible thing called a relationship. And the more relationally oriented you are, the more peace there will be in your relationships. And the more strained or distant you are, I would tell parents that some parents were, were big into rules with their kids. Big, big you know, rule makers. And I would try to communicate to them. Their kids are just out of control. They're rebelling like crazy. They're 15, they're 16, they're 17, and they're just rebelling like crazy. And I look at a dad or I look at a mom or I look at the two of them and I go, rules without relationship leads to rebellion. You've got to have a relationship with your kids. You've got to spend time. You've got to know what's up. Hey, take them for the best way. If you want to change your relationship with your kids, adult kids, grown kids, whatever it is, you go for a walk. You go for a walk, literally, because when they come in from school or anything else, how is school? Fine. How's your friends? Fine. How's your grades? Fine. Everything, it's one word. Fine. Everything's fine. So sick of the word fine, I'm going to remove it from the English language. You say, hey, let's go for a walk down to the park. One block from the house, your kids are just like, bo, 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 and this is going on, and this is going on, and this is what's happening, and this is what's... So we just, oh, we just got to go for a walk? That's, that's the big mystery? Because when you go for a walk and you talk, relationship, and it's amazing that, that next week how peaceful and, and a lot of the strife and tension that's gone because of relational richness. 
but it takes time to invest in the other person. And you might selfishly go, I'm tired, I'm busy, I wanna watch the game, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, because once again, your own selfish ambition to save your life is keeping you from building a relationship, and so you're continuing to walk in a lack of wisdom, and so there's chaos and every evil thing in the relationships around you because you're simply not spending time with one another. It's not rocket science, but it does take time, effort, and intentionality, but it does make for peace. I don't know about you, but I wanna hang out with people that are moving towards wisdom. None of us have arrived, but this is what wisdom looks like. This first picture of this guy in the raft, would you like this to be your raft guide? This is the guy that's taking you down. This is, this is you and your interaction with everybody around you. Let's go down the rapids and get thrown out of the boat. Or would you like to get to the end of the trip like this next picture? Right, this next picture has, hey, we arrived. I got a good guide in the back, you know, my raft guide. I just went rafting on the Payette River this summer the week of the 4th of July, and we were going through some category four things where it's just like almost you're just buried in the water and then you come shooting out of the thing. And the guide was back there and he was just asking the boat. He's like, do you want it intense or do you want it soft? Because, you know, he can navigate towards a real serious rapid or the milder part of the rapids. And all of us, well, it was Bryce, Eddie, and I in the front, we're like, bring it on. You know, so we, we were kind of intense guys. But, you know, we, we arrived safely because this guide was very skilled in what he did and how he controlled things because he was a wise guide to navigate the turbulence of this river. And the turbulence in your life, in water, it has to do with the volume of the water and the descent of the water and the obstacles in the water, how rough water is, right? If the water, if the elevation's pretty flat, it's pretty placid. But as soon as the incline happens and water is descending quickly and then there's big boulders, that's where you get these huge rapids. Well, life's like that too. And you have to figure out in wisdom how to navigate the obstacles in your relationships. And it comes through the wisdom that God wants to give each one of us. James says at the beginning of this book, if you lack wisdom, ask God and God will give it freely to you. All I have to do is say, God, I need wisdom for today. He's gonna go, okay, I'm gonna get download it. Because by me asking means I'm humbling myself that I'm confessing I don't have the wisdom I need to face this. I don't have the wisdom I need to help my marriage. I don't know how the wisdom to reach this child. I don't have the wisdom to fix this with this coworker. I don't have the wisdom to figure out this conflict in the ministry. God, give me wisdom. And when you move through life asking for wisdom and implementing wisdom, you're gonna discover that your life is richer and fuller <laughs> and you're gonna be the recipient of all the blessings of it. It says the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of right living. But some people are unwilling to live with us at peace. So I, I don't wanna give you some false understanding because you can be a peaceful person. But as Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. On my part, I want to be peaceful with someone, but there's times that other people don't want to be peaceful with me. You know what I mean? And I can't make that happen, and you can't make that happen. So I'm not trying to communicate that. Like, I'm the peaceful person. Like Pastor Rick said, I'm pursuing wisdom, and this person's still a jerk. Well, it doesn't mean they want to be a wise person. It doesn't mean they, they can still be a fool or something. Titus says, within the church, 
He says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. There are some people that just love to bring conflicts. And when they cause conflicts within the church environment, I'm the pastor, so I go to them and I say, hey man, you gotta stop being so attacking and contentious and you're really hurting a lot of people. And I'll tell them once and I'll tell them twice. And the third time, I'm gonna give them the left foot of fellowship and say, go away until you can get, grow up and do better. This is... Biblical Discipline 101. Because Solomon said in Proverbs 22:10, cast out the scoffer and contention will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. It's amazing when you kick out the scoffer how peaceful the rest of us. Most of us are peace-loving people. <laughs> but we had to get that person off the team. We had to let that person go at the job. We had to kick that person out of church for a while until they repented and wanted to come back as more peaceful people. How do you have discipline for adults? Well, adults only understand, you're fired. <laughs> They only understand you're kicked off the team or they only understand, you know, I've talked to you two or three times and that's it. You, you know, you're not welcome here until you want to repent and change your approach. You're a contentious, foolish, hateful, angry, self-centered individual that's hurting everybody around you and we're not going to put up with it anymore. You're not going to bully people anymore because you have to have the guts to stand up to bullies, relational bullies. So it doesn't mean because we're... <laughs> And that's my role as a peacemaker within the congregation. Blessed are the peacemakers. <laughs> I'm doing my job. But what most people do is they ignore the conflict. You can't ignore it. You can't ignore it. If you ignore problems, what happens? They just get worse. They get bigger. They get uglier. Because Ephesians 4.15 says, Speak the truth in love and grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Speaking the truth in love, and sometimes that's hard things is what we need to do. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. When you're a person that navigates life with wisdom from above, and you can bring harmony and peace and blessing and joyfulness, people are gonna go, whoa, you must hang out with God. You must hang out with God, because God's helping you do that, because I've been trying to do it on my own. I don't, I'm not getting it done, simply because you're not leaning into those things. I know a lot of people in church that have a lot of fine points of theology and yet they're absolute jerks to hang out with because all they want to do is fight. All they want to do is be contentious and argumentative. <laughs> they're like a, they're like a point, uh, porcupine. They have a lot of fine points, but it's hard to get close to them, right? And, and I find people in their theological endeavors, like it's like Jesus saying, hey, you study the scriptures day and night. But they're the ones that are testifying me, the wise one, and you totally are missing it. You think God's word or God's church is a place just to be hateful and attack people with your, the sword of the spirit. No, it's to bring healing and wholeness and, and joy and love and peace and faith and hope. Things that encourage us and build us up. That's wisdom from above. That's what makes our family here different than the ball team, than the classroom, than the office complex is operating with wisdom that comes from above. Amen? Hey, we're gonna pray, and I, uh, we don't do sign-ups. We have a baptism today. We've already baptized, I think, uh, well, we baptized 22, 43, there you go. Boom, out of the, uh, 43 people. <laughs> and... 
And, uh, and, and maybe you've never been baptized. The Bible says to repent and be baptized. This is a simple act of obedience to do what the Lord wants you to do. You are identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. When Jesus laid down in the tomb, you go down in the water. And when he came up out of the tomb in the resurrection, you come up out of the water in the newness of life. And that's the symbol. I shared this story last night, but I think it bears repeating. Years ago, I was in a storefront that started a church. And, and there was this guy. He was well-known in town. He was this rich farmer, but he didn't look like a rich farmer. He would dress in very, you know, average clothes and an old beat-up pickup. But everybody knew he was quite wealthy. And he was also a stellar Christian. And he was 88 years old. And he started coming to our church. We had a Sunday night baptism. And we didn't have a built-in baptismal like this. So I'm a redneck. I'm a bull rider. I'm a cowboy. So I brought in this old horse trough. It's a, you know, galvanized horse, eight-foot horse trough. We filled it with water and had this heating element to knock the chill off. And we had this baptism in the storefront. And I had baptized probably, you know, 10, 12 people. And I said, hey, is there anybody else that's going to get baptized? And, and Bertie stands up. He's on the back row. And he comes to the front. And I thought maybe Bertie didn't have his hearing aids in or something. I mean, Bertie was a well-known Christian in our community. And I said, uh, Bertie, you know, I'm just giving the last call for this baptism. And he goes, I know I'm coming up here, Pastor Rick, to get baptized. And I said, now, wait a second, we're having this conversation in front of the congregation. I said, now, now, now Bertie, how long have you been walking with Jesus? He said, 58 years. And I said, in 58 years, you've never been baptized in your whole life, Bertie? He goes, nope, never been a place I wanted to. But I'm getting baptized right here tonight. He had a big chaw to back in. He had his work boots on. He's 88 years old. And he could, he could barely get his leg over the, you know, the trough and put him in there. And, and we baptized him. And here, here was a guy that this has to be, to me, the simplest commandment in the scriptures. Repent and be baptized. Because you see, it's your public confession that you're following Jesus. Do you realize that? This is the New Testament way to confess before others right here in the waters. I'm identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Yes, you confess with your mouth when you tell people about the Lord. But this is the public way you declare that you're saved. Because people don't know you're saved so they see you identify with him. Because God sees your heart. Baptism doesn't save you, it just declares you're already saved. So maybe you came and you got your Sunday best on, but I promise you, it, you're not made of sugar, you won't melt, you'll be all right. We had people, came, they came in their dresses, they had guys just come down with their shoes on, everything through all of these services, 43 people. And maybe today's the day. You've been resisting, you've been holding off, you're worried about what other people think. Your ladies will ask me, ladies that are really concerned with their appearance in public, they're like, Pastor Rick, can I have a, a private baptism in our jacuzzi in our backyard so nobody will see me with my hair wet? I said, the whole point is that the people see you as, that's the point of baptism, is that people see you. I know about my hair and my, honey, we love you. It's okay. If your makeup runs a little bit, it's all right. Wouldn't you rather be obedient to Jesus than worried about your image or that selfie for that moment? Come on. I'm gonna pray for us and pray that the Lord just prepares our heart for what he wants to do here. And if that's you, Jesus loves you. He's drawing you towards his wisdom and his love and his grace and his forgiveness. Stop resisting him. Stop making excuses. Stop throwing up the roadblocks, the yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but and just surrender. Jesus, help us. We ask for your wisdom in this moment, Lord, by your spirit. We don't know what you have planned for your servants here, but we're all moving towards this wisdom that is from above. Thank you for letting us know what it looks like. But this is wisdom, Lord. 
you said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And Lord, you said the display of our love is our willingness to simply obey you. It's not necessarily emotions, though they might come with it. It's not feelings, though they may be present. It's about saying, I love you, Lord. I wanna do what you want me to do. And so Lord, I pray that you'd move on those hearts that are here that have, have believed in Jesus. Who love, Lord, you love them so much. And you paid a brutal cross naked upon a cross publicly for them. The least we can do is follow you in identifying in the waters of baptism with your death, burial, and resurrection. So move now by your spirit as we worship you, as we celebrate, as we rejoice, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the Bible says that when one sinner repents, the angels rejoice in heaven. So I want you to know we're, we're going to have some celebrating here today if someone comes and uh, follows the Lord in baptisms. So you're going to come over here. If you want to get baptized, come up this side. I'm going to go back here and take my jacket off, and we'll see if somebody wants to get baptized today.
Stand against, I choose to 